Get down. Uh-huh. Good tune. Cool. What are you, a DJ now? <laughs> so, um, what's up? Welcome to the show, LA2B. I'm Tom McCaffrey. I'm here with Eric B. Rate and review this podcast. Subscribe. Join our Patreon and our uh, sponsor, Silk City Hot Sauce. Um, go to their website, silkcityhotsauce.com, and, and buy it. 15% off if you use the promo code Brooklyn. So, big show today. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, get into what everyone's talking about. Johnny uh, Depp and Amber Heard. <laughs> so have you been following this song? I mean, I don't probably not. Right? Not really. I just someone pointed out to me what he looks like these days. Not so he doesn't look like the old Johnny Depp, really. Yeah, but you know what? He ever I I keep hearing people say things like that, but he, he doesn't look bad. I mean, no, you know, he's sick. He's like 80. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know. People yeah. always like it's like those those things where you see where they go uh Oh, check out what the celebrity looks at like now. You ever see those things at those clickbait? Yeah, articles? and they're like, look at him. He's like lost his hair. I'm like, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, once... called, it's called aging. You know, it's like people have to be so surprised by it. Yeah, I, I one time I was like kind of writing for National Lampoon's um, website, and yeah. I, I was doing this funny thing of like that, like you know, check out these celebrities now, you know, and it was like, look at this jerk, he lost all his hair. And it was like Sean Connery at like eighty. <laughs> what is he doing? You know, and then like Jack Nicholson, um, like he's like he's fat now, you know. And it's just kind of can you believe this guy got old? It's just <laughs> such a weird. But so anyway, Johnny Depp, like yeah, I was here. He looks like shit. First of all, all I read about is that he's drinking like wine every day for the last thirty five years. Like yeah five bottles of wine he looks like amazing for that um you know what if he wanted to make himself look better if he for a movie he'd probably lose all the weight and you know within in a couple weeks he probably looked normal yeah a couple of hours but also like uh i've you know i haven't really been following it but you know i had that thing where you know first of all it's like i he's he's suing her for defamation or something because i guess she wrote an op-ed like six years ago about him, which I don't, you know, didn't even mention his name. First, first I feel like no one even knew about that op-ed until this. So yeah. that it's kind of like, why would you bring it back up? But also I didn't know this. Apparently he lost like $700 million. Like his um, people stole money from him, which I'm always like, how that's a lot of money to steal from your yeah. client. Hey, uh, we have a guest coming up. So, um, Oh, Okay. Okay, so we're back. Um, our guest is here. We're very excited to have him on. Um, it's probably the biggest guest we've had. Uh, we're both Huge. really big fans. Um, I don't know what he's basically been in everything. I was looking at IMDb, <laughs> but you know, just to go through a few. Uh, Groundhog Day. Sorry, I had to say. Um, Silicon Valley, Californication, mm-hmm. Basic Instinct, Thelma and Louise. Please give it up for our guest, Stephen Dablowski. Yeah. How are you? Thank you. Thank you. Um, they're applauding at home. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Yes. So, uh, Stephen, thanks for coming on. I we went to this same college. That's kind of how this. So mm-hmm. you went to what SMU. year were you? What year were you? I think I graduated in 2019. No, um, <laughs> 95. I graduated. Nine to five. So I was 73. Class of 73. So we we just missed each other yeah, by a <laughs> lifetime. Um, so you're from Dallas, right? That's right, Oak Cliff, which is in the south of Dallas. 
And did you, how did you end up, you, you were, you were a theater major at SMU, right? Right. Right. And how did that happen? Was that, were you interested in acting in high school? And then, um, I was interested from when I was a little kid, I was always interested in acting. Uh, when I, the first school I went to was Jeff Davis and I used to love watching all those Hercules movies and the cowboy movies where they're all fighting and they're on the edge of the cliff. I thought that was way dramatic. And so I'd walk to school and I would enact these scenes from the movies on the way to school. So you could see me walk to school and suddenly I'd start strangling myself and, and, and get, you know, like the guys on the edge of the cliff, like in the bad guys about to, so I'd be on the ground and cars would stop and like, are you okay? Or, or is there something wrong? I said, just, just I'm making movies is what I used to say. <laughs> that's how, make, I think that's how all actors pretty much start, right? Things like I, that. I go to my mother and she said, what are you doing, honey? What are you doing? Mom, I'm going to go outside and make movies. And she would say, oh, that's okay. So that's kind of, not that I knew what making movies was, except I, I found them exciting and then in school, high school, I was in school plays and things like that. And then, yes, I was a drama major at SMU with a bit of, uh, gosh, it was it was a ruse. My parents did not want me to continue being an actor. That's what I was going to ask. So, like, when you went to SMU to do that, were they like, um, okay. Yeah. Well, th well, they wanted me to go to SMU. That's where my father went to school. You know, when oh, he was a little okay. kid, you know, when he paid like $3.50 for tuition, you know, back <laughs> yeah. then. It's a little bit more now. Yeah. yeah. A little bit more now. And, and you know, when I went, it was something like 7500 no, $750 a semester. Wow. $750 a semester. So yet it was still very, very cheap because I remember the meal ticket, which was $750, was the same as my tuition. So it's basically $1,500 a semester to go to SMU in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, it's changed a little bit because one of the Kardashians went there. Uh, oh, not no. Ago, so. <laughs> wow. I had no, I had no, I, I remember, yeah. uh, I don't know if you remember this, the, the way they did it. You could not pick a major your freshman year. At least that's was my case. Really? And, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, you could say, well, I'm going to be a, a science major, whatever, religion major, they had those, whatever you wanted to be, because there were certain courses you had to take, but you couldn't really declare a major until your sophomore year. So what I did was I told my parents I was major. They didn't know this little trick of, of, of you know, linguistics. And so yeah. I, I said, I'm majoring in geology which they liked because that required taking an advanced math, which I did. I was taking calculus. Uh, you had to take geology, which I loved. I had a rock collection at home. I took geology. At SMU, you had to take religion. I was taking religion, Old and New Testament. So I was taking all the courses to be a geology major plus theater. And uh, <laughs> that one in. it's not that smart. <laughs> so, so the parents had no idea that I was really planning on a theater major, which I was going to specialize in the next year. So, uh, it, there was lying involved. 
I, you know, oddly, geology, I think, is the only class at SMU I failed. You took geology? <laughs> yeah. You, you failed? <laughs> and I failed. Oh, it's hard. It's, yeah. it's hard. Well, you know, I don't know that it was that hard. I mean, it was hard, but I had a thing where, um, and this was, a, you know, a lot of stuff in college where I like, I feel like looking back on college, I didn't take it real seriously at the time. I just kind of was mm-hmm. like, oh, whatever. And I like had to go out of town. It was like right before the holidays. And I was going away with my family and I didn't bother to tell the professor. And then I realized the final was like after I had to leave. And I was like, yeah, I need to take the final. Like, I, I thought he would just let me take it later, like when I came back. And he's like, okay, well, you have to take it now. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to go well. So then um, I took it and failed. But um, see, this, you- this is why we are doomed. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to DMR, Dewey's Movie Reviews, an Australian based podcast reviewing all the latest and greatest movies out there, all of the newest series on streaming platforms, an interview here and there, and of course, all the celebrity goss as well. So if you're looking for a high-quality movie and series review podcast, look no further than DMR Dewey's Movie Reviews, The Red Carpet Treatment. It's like <laughs> I know I knew it was going to ruin the world eventually. No, no. Me not like, well on the it. difference. The problem is with humanity. The difference between our ages is not severe, but the difference between our ages is like night and day, and no one would ever understand the metaphor. When I went to SMU, the Vietnam War was mm-hmm. raging, and it was incumbent on all eighteen-year-olds. If you were a man, not a woman, but if you were a man, to sign up for for the military and you prayed for that student deferment. So I got a student deferment when I was a geology major that freshman year, but the, but the government was uh, a feared that it was way too prejudiced to have students easily getting out of the military by, by student deferments, and they weren't going to give art students, a student deferment the sophomore year. Yeah. And, and so there was none of the lackadaisical discuss- the, the attitude toward <laughs> testing that you have, Tom. I mean, it was your life. Wow. If you got If you got some sort of thing where you didn't take a test or you missed an exam, you were on the bus to Vietnam. Believe wow. me, would- if if there had been a war going on, I would have studied for that it, test. Well, yeah, but but people can't understand how just a brief period of history how different it is. And then when I became a sophomore, someone in Congress, bless their heart, I don't know who, said that you could get a student deferment your sophomore year if you, they they didn't ban being an art student and not getting a student deferment. So I survived my sophomore year and then Nixon stopped the war. So then it wasn't, it wasn't an issue, but I was scared to death. Was that, I mean, that really must've been a possibility. I just think it's kind of funny. (laughs) Go ahead, Eric. No, just for a year, they were sending theater majors to Vietnam. It seemed yeah. like <laughs> they were sending everyone. To, uh, so that in our class, <laughs> in our class, we had one very gifted actor, uh, Gary Roberts, who just passed away this last year. And I want to salute Gary. 
because I have loved Gary my entire life, and I miss him all the time. So Gary was one of the better actors, freshman actors in our department. And the beginning of sophomore year, they had a night which was probably the highest ratings of television of all time. And that's because they were drawing numbers out of a fishbowl of birthdays of when you were in the first group, the first third of the birthdays were definitely going to Vietnam. Second, second hundred or whatever it is, 120 birthdays, maybe 50, 50 third section of birthdays, not going to Vietnam at all. Mm -hmm. And all of us were praying to be in group three and you could imagine every mother and father in the country sitting around their TVs uh, w with Gary Roberts' birthday number was picked number two. Oof. Number wow. two of the first group. And the next day, I, I was in the second group. So I was in the, I had no relief, but at least I wasn't absolutely going. And the next day, Gary was like, Someone had uh, point blank, uh, Brucey e. Springsteen, you know, just uh, another one ready to get blown away. You know, he, he, it looked as though he had been killed the night before. Did he go? And, no, no, because the war ended the next year. Oh, Nixon God. stopped it before wow. he was called up, but. He knew that he wasn't going to be able to finish college, and he was going to be sent to Vietnam, no ifs, ands, or buts. Wow. And it, We had a similar thing when I was there. We all were around the TV watching um, the finale of Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the difference of time. Yeah, oh, so, yeah. Close. so was, uh, the stakes were a lot lower when, uh, when I was there. Um, so, okay, so when you – so you, you went there, and then you graduated SMU, and were you when you – got out of there were you like dead set like i'm gonna be an actor now or yeah. was it kind of a and what was your did you have a plan were you like i want to go to la or i want to go to new york or what did you do after that you got out of college i know you went to grad school but yeah after but, that, but that was an afterthought the the original the original idea was uh my girlfriend beth uh, Henley and I, we were definitely going to go to New York. We were going to be babes on Broadway. That's That was the initial dream. That's what we talked about. And and then what happened was it seemed like a dream somewhat deferred that maybe we should go to graduate school. Maybe we would get some sort of placement, some sort of help that would help us in the future. So I got accepted to all these graduate schools, and Beth got accepted to two. And so we ended up going to the University of Illinois mm. with Bernard Hopgood, who was the head of the drama program at SMU. So Bernard oh. said that he was starting a new MFA program at the University of Illinois. Would Beth and I please come? Wait, so, so so I'm sorry. So Beth Henley was at SMU when you were there. <clears throat> yeah, she was a freshman when I was a sophomore. Okay, so and I, I fell know. in love with so her. So she's a okay. So she's a, a famous playwright. She wrote uh, right. Crimes of the Heart, right? Right, right. She wrote Crimes of the Heart, won Pulitzer Prize, her first full length play. Yeah, that wow, was Beth. good, uh, good. Um, but uh, but she didn't want to be. She didn't want to be. Uh, a, she didn't even think about being a playwright. Uh, she wrote a play. She took playwriting, I guess, her senior year. Biff Leonard was the teacher. She took playwriting her senior year, 
And one of the plays, and I'm not sure how it happened, one of the plays fell out of of, of being produced. And so they decided, uh, whoever they was, someone at Meadows School of the Arts, that they would pick a play from within the SMU family. And so Beth had written a play that didn't quite have a name. I think she called it Am I Blue? Uh, but she submitted it under a pseudonym because she was certain she would be embarrassed. And uh, under the name of Amy Peach was the pseudonym <laughs> she entered the, the play in. That sounds like so a real name. <laughs> they have all of these plays submitted at SMU, not only the the present playwriting students, but anyone who went to SMU could submit a past writers, whatever. And of all things, Am I Blue by Amy Peach was picked to be in the season. And now we were all laughing because Beth wanted all of her friends to help her type up the play because she was so embarrassed because the play was going to cause people to glottal vomit, as she was saying. She said, <laughs> it's so bad. It's so terrible. She can't believe it won. So I I was typing some pages, and her roommate, Louise McReynolds, was typing some pages. Terry Vandevoort, who's still an actor, I believe, in Dallas at Theater 3, he was typing pages. And we were all joking because it was all kind of this... We were the blind men and the elephant. Nobody saw what the whole play was. We just saw a few pages and it was all kind of Beth's quirky, weird, nonsensical humor for five pages. We, we didn't know what it was. How, how long was the play? It was, I want to say it was a long one act. Okay, I, and, then I they, seen... and then they produced it? Yeah, SMU? yeah. They, they produced it. And uh, I remember... Sitting in the audience, opening night, and her mother and sisters had come out from Jackson, Mississippi, to see it. Then I look up there, and I see the reviewers from the Dallas Morning News and the Times-Herald. I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is like getting very real, very fast, because she's going to be murdered, and she isn't going to be the same Beth anymore, this whimsical delightful character that was always filled with humor and nonsense everywhere she went. She never took anything that seriously. And my heart was pounding so hard when the lights went down and that opening performance started. God, I, I will never forget it because by halfway through the play, silence fell over the audience, and there's nothing like that holy silence that falls when an audience gets it, and they, they're getting the play, and then the play was interrupted by huge laughter, and then silence, and I'm talking, oh my God, who is this person that's sitting next to me that wrote this play? The play is exquisite. Are you it's guys dating at that point? I think we were living together at that point. Oh, I was going to say. So we were more than like... dating. Yeah. And and so I'm going like, oh, my God, this, this is what. So that was the first glimmer we had that Beth was a kind of a writer. And, and was, I we guess went, that was the first time that she kind of thought maybe she had something. Had an maybe. Act for that. Yeah. It, it, it certainly was a huge pat on the back. Add a boy. You know, you've been produced at SMU. 
Did she want to be an actress? Was she a theater major? Yeah. She wanted to be an actress and she looked too much like a little girl, you know, to get any serious acting roles because when you're in college, you not only don't play the age you are, it's a little like high school, almost as bad. Uh, You play grown-up people. You know, you play women in their 50s and 60s and 70s. You play, oh, how are you? You know, you have the (laughs) wigs if you're the guy, oh, how are you? You you know, nobody plays their age. And our acting teachers, when they were good, saying like, none of you are going to be playing any of these parts when you leave college. When you leave... I'm sorry. So wait, was Kathy Bates there when you were there? Kathy Bates was there. She was a junior when I started. So she was a couple years ahead of me. And then Powers Booth came in after the oh, first year. He was wow. he was there, Powers Booth, yeah. And and so I did, mean did, it was, did Kathy Bates do I, I remember like um she came to speak to us when I was there because <laughs> she just had won the Oscar. Oh um, yeah. So um did she kind of get her start with Beth Henley? Was that like one of her first parts or something? I feel like she had talked about something like that, that early well, on. It, it was early on. Now, Kathy, we all knew Kathy was the best actress in the department at SMU, but she wasn't cast that much and uh, because they were – you know, they just felt like, well, this person's right for the part. This person's right. And so they, they did uh, – Electra, I think, for Kathy, where she got to play Electra during, f- as written by four different playwrights, as uh, I think it was like, was it by, forgive me, uh, Sophocles, uh, Euripides, Giridou. Uh, it's it's been reimagined. Right. It's been reimagined by four different playwrights, and so Kathy played Electra in all these different incarnations. Then she went to New York, and she had a really hard time getting cast. And one of the stories of Kathy, she was in a, a big hit off Broadway, and maybe off off Broadway, uh, Vanities. Yeah, that's what it was. That's what she was talking about. She was in Vanities, and it was a huge hit in New York, also written by uh, SMU playwright. And uh, so it was a huge success off off broad. I, I don't want to say off off, but off broad. I'll just say off. I don't remember the exact theater it was at. What they would say, but then Kathy was out of the show for a week, and her understudy Pat Richardson also from SMU, who ended up on family, what, what? Um, oh, the, the um, Tim Home Improvement? Yeah, Home Improvement. Home Impro- oh, that Pat, oh, wow. Yeah, that yeah. Pat Richardson. Yeah. She was at SMU as well. She was also a junior, I think, when I came in, and then a senior graduated. She was in New York. She was the understudy, uh, Kathy's understudy in Vanities, and the word of Vanities got out the week Kathy left the show. Pat Richardson took over a part for one week, and that's when I believe it was casting directors from ABC saw her oh. and picked her up to be uh, an actress. They had like contract actresses then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so she did some show before Home Improvement. She, she was in a couple mm-hmm. of shows. I don't have Pat's resume in front of me, but 
she was very successful and Kathy came back even more despondent that she right. missed her big chance. And so Yeah, she really blew it. It's too bad <laughs> nothing ever came of her. When, uh, but but I, think it did, yeah. I think it did take her a little bit. I know this. Maybe I'm wrong about the story. She was in this play called Frankie and Johnny, Kathy Bates. Yeah, and they made them later on. Oh, and they made the movie, but she wasn't in the movie. So it took yes, her a little yes. time. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it kind of went the other way, too, because, uh, God, you know, everybody has to. You, you have these insurmountable mountains to climb, and you just don't know if there's going to be a valley on the other side or just another mountain and maybe a bear climbing over the mountain. You know, you just don't know what's going especially in show business. Uh, when we were at the University of Illinois, Beth was not cast that much. Again, she was cast as a little girl in uh, – uh, Thornton Wilder's, oh God, what is it? Not our town. But about the world coming to an end, about the world coming to an end, comes to an end three times. So she played the little girl. And again, she was cast as a little girl. And there was a woman, Claudia Riley, in our class, not our, <laughs> she was an undergraduate student. She was the only playwriting student at the University of Illinois. The only one, not the only female, the only one. And Claudia wrote a play and asked Beth and I if we would be actors reading the play, the first play. So we said yes, and Claudia was very happy with that. And on the walk home from the playwriting thing, Beth said, I think I don't want to be an actress anymore. I want to be a playwright. And I'm like thinking like, you know, take your pick. You know, you're not going to get a job doing either of them. You know, none of us are. We're all doomed <laughs> You're, we're doomed to burn now. And 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 she said, it's so brave what Claudia is doing. And I go, I am i don't understand the bravery. I mean, she's a student in playwriting, so she wrote a play. Yeah, but she's a woman. And I, I said, baby, I said, it's a whole different world. You know, men are strippers. Women are rodeo riders. It's the, you know, anybody could do whatever they want. So anyway, Beth decided to write. And she kept notes in this little book, and then she had a family tragedy. Uh, her her grandfather wandered away from home, got lost in the woods in, in Mississippi, and they wow. were certain he, he was dead. And they sent everybody out to look for him. They couldn't find him, but he survived, and he came back, and Beth started writing a play called Old Granddaddy's Dying. And... Uh, I'm thinking like, well, this place sounds enormously promising. You know, just the title alone, I can't right. wait to go see the show. <laughs> yeah, Grand It's Eddie. a comedy, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, she starts writing, and she has this stack of pages like this. Then her father has a stroke, real father in Mississippi has a stroke. She goes back to Mississippi, and somewhere along the line, he— he never had a lot of faith in her. I don't want to curse the dead, but he never really supported her the way I think parents should support their children. And uh, she came back very despondent from, from that meeting. And then she finished writing this play, Old Granddaddy's Dying. And as she's writing, 
I'm reading the pages in the other room as it's coming off the typewriter, expecting it just like, am I blue, expecting it for it to be terrible. And I'm reading the play. It was not terrible. It was stratospheric. It was laugh out loud, crazy funny. It was break your heart. And it was phenomenal. And it was almost like the best sex in the world is that she was like typing the very last page as I'm reading the last page, pulls it out of the typewriter, hands it to me. Exquisite. That's um that that's kind of amazing. Someone who's who who became or such a great writer, like having the experience of like them literally writing it and handing it to you. Like so you're literally seeing them write it. That's kind of I don't know how many people have had that experience. <laughs> Exquisite. And I'm saying, like, baby, you can't have a name as bad as old granddaddy's dying. Uh, and she said, Well, I was so affected by Chekhov, I thought maybe I call it three Mississippi sisters. I said, well, you, you can't do that anyway. You can't. You know, these aren't, this play requires, you know, you need to have a, like a name like the youngest sister in this shoots her husband because she didn't like the way he looked. Now, in legal terms, they would say it is a crime of passion. Uh, so why don't you call it crimes of passion? So she called to Crimes of Passion, and we were going to do it as an equity waiver play here in California with all of our friends. The woman who was playing Meg, Sharon Ulrich, who's still an actress in New York, gave the copy of Crimes of Passion to her agent. He gave it to his boyfriend, who likes to read plays on the plane when he comes to and from New York. We get a phone call from Gilbert Parker uh, at Kennedy Airport, at Kennedy Airport. And he goes, hello, as I'm trying to reach Beth Henley, is this is Gilbert Parker? And no idea who Gilbert Parker was. And so I go, uh, Beth, uh, this Gilbert Parker wants to talk to you. So she's like on the phone and he's like talking and her face is like, and she's making signs to me like, he turned out to be the agent of Lillian Hellman, Mark Medoff, Tennessee Williams. He, oh. he was the agent of the greatest writers in New York. And he said, I would like to help you with crimes of passion. Uh, would, would that be all right with you? And, and she <laughs> she's said, like, let me think about it. <laughs> and she said, yeah. He said, the thing is, you can't call it crimes of passion because Ken Russell in England is making a movie now called Crimes of Passion. You can't copyright a title, but you need to change that. So Beth came back to me and said, we need to change, <laughs> we need to change the title. So we get in the car, we're driving around, and I said, well, if you're Crimes of Passion, you could call it Crimes of the Heart, and it's the same thing. So Crimes of Passion became Crimes of the Heart. This is where we come back to the A story that so you brought you, up. You basically named... Uh, came up with the name Crimes of the Heart. Literally and figuratively, in any way, shape, <laughs> or form, I came up with the name because Beth was not good at titles. So she liked me to come up with titles. I so had anyway, the same experience with the movie Fast and the Furious. I came up with that title. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
They were going to call it Crimes of Passion. <laughs> that guy. Like, some... no. I think they were going to call it E.T. Wasn't that the original name? Right? Yeah, it was E.T. or Forrest Gump. And I was like, no, fast. You, you guys are going fast. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Be- because of Gilbert Parker, best play was entered in the Great American Play Contest in Louisville, at the Actors Theater of Louisville, mm. which was a big damn deal. Uh, what year was this, by the way? What year? This, I'm saying this uh, uh, late 70s. Okay. I think she won the Pulitzer Prize, I think, in 78. I mean, you may have to look that up. I, I don't have that number, but it's around then. So we're talking about 77 or so, so something like that. Uh, we were in the house with the swing on the front. So that's that's when in the late 70s. <laughs> and uh, so... It won the Great American Play Contest, and Beth went to Louisville and said, well, they've cast Kathy Bates as the head sister, who I know uh, it was, a, was an actress at SMU. And I go, yeah, yeah, she's like the best actress that's ever been at SMU. And Beth said, and then they have this woman, Susan Kingsley, who's as good as she is playing Meg. Uh, I've never heard of her. And I'm going like, well, if there's someone on earth that you could compare to Kathy Bates in quality, you have got a play. I mean, you got two of the three sisters being like the greatest actor, actors that ever lived. So I went there opening night in Louisville, and it was amazing. It was amazing. Applause that would not end. She won the grand prize there in Louisville. And then shortly after that, she had all sorts of interest in her making it a New York production. Now, what happened to Kathy Bates? She was at Louisville. Marsha Norman was a big playwright in Louisville. And Marsha Norman wrote a play, Getting Out, which was in New York. I'm not sure if Getting Out won the Pulitzer Prize. It may have. It certainly won several big awards. And Susan Kingsley was the star of getting out in New York. So Marcia Norman writes another play, Night Mother, which Susan Kingsley, I believe, played the main role at the Actors Theater of Louisville. But going to New York, Susan was now tied up with another play, whatever. And so they picked Kathy Bates to be in Night Mother. Uh, and I, I I remember her talking about that too. And I think Rob Reiner was there right when it opened, and he said, "I want you for Misery." And so Kathy Bates, who felt like she had missed the train with uh, vanities, suddenly goes to Louisville, ends up in regional theater, ends up on Broadway, wins Tony Awards, whatever. Then she ends up in misery because of that and wins Academy Award number one. I think it was Academy Award number one. Yeah, that's uh, not that worked out kind of well for her that she um, so you got to go to Louisville just, to win an Oscar. Basically, that's the goal. Yes. You just <laughs> don't know the route you take. You don't yeah. know the path you take. So can I, all right, so so with you, when you graduated and you got your master's, were you like, I'm going to stay in Illinois or were you like, were you always, because I, you know, you said you were interested in movies early on. Were you like, I want to go to LA and be in movies or. 
I realized I needed a master's degree like a hole in the head. <laughs> so I left the program. I left uh, the program okay. after one year. I'm and, out of here. And, and this is where we go to the sub-A story that you brought up before, New York or L.A. Now I had some wisdom to me, and I understood that it's easier to be poor in Los Angeles. Definitely I had been in New York at that time too, especially like there was, I feel like there was a time that was, I mean, I lived in life for a couple of years and yeah, that was one thing I noticed. Like I didn't have much money. You can live pretty much like a human New York. It's a lot harder too. It's, it's so hard, uh, you know, in New York, I remember one of those first house hunting ventures. I went in and I saw an apartment. It was like one room had a dresser in it and a bed. That was nice. Had a hot plate over on the side uh, no, no kitchen. And then I said, and the bathroom is, and they go, well, you go downstairs across the street, there's the pizza parlor. So they'll <laughs> usually let you use the bathroom in the pizza parlor. And I go, wait, 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 wait. You know, what do I have a chamber pot at night? I mean, what do we, you know, what is, you know, where's the shower? He's like, have you seen the window? <laughs> I, I mean, give me, so. That was $300 a month in New York, no bathroom. And the little house where Gilbert Parker called Beth and I, $450 a month with two bedrooms, a bathroom, a swing on the front porch, and a backyard. Nice. That's the difference. Can I, so what, so can you remember your mind frame at that point? Were you just kind of like, all right, I'm going to go here. Like what, like, like were you just like, I'm going to hit the ground running or how did it, like, how did things kind of start for you or. Boy, it's like with the mindset of just say yes, whatever comes your way. And one of the, they had casting magazines at the time, like drama log and, you know, backstage and all these. And at the back they had auditions that were like legitimate auditions for, for different things. So one of them was for a children's theater company. And you had to, it was weird requirements. You had to be able to play two musical instruments and speak a foreign language as well as English, of course. And, and so I could play two musical instruments. I play piano and guitar. And I, my language was German. I said, I could speak German uh, and, uh, and wow, oh, also you had to do mine, which, uh, as you could see, <laughs> Hey, it's, I, I, it plays very well over zoom. <laughs> I could, I could do mine. For a you second, know, least... I thought you were actually in a box. Help, help, <laughs> help. Um, <laughs> you know, so I went that week and auditioned for 12th night repertory company, which was an equity job. An equity job. Wow. You know, they pay 120 a week uh, for the minimum number of shows, and then you got paid extra per show if you did more. So I made, I got on that first week. Uh, uh, they wanted someone, unfortunately, this was my, so you do speak a foreign language. And I go German. And they said, speak German to me. I go, ich muss mir eine neue Jacke kaufen, man kann niemand seine Stimme erkennen. And they go, okay, okay, okay. Those are the only two sentences I know in German. <laughs> and I said, Ich muss mir eine neue Jacke kaufen. That means I must buy that jacket. And man kann ihn immer an seine Stimme erkennen. One can hear the noise all the way from the street. 
or in okay. I feel like that's all you really need in Germany. <laughs> that's too. But they just buy a lot of jackets there. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted me to do a Spanish show, an all Spanish show, and I didn't know how to speak Spanish. <laughs> but I figure, hey, that's why we got a public library. Oh yeah. my so god! I, I go to the library and they had a book. Learn Spanish in like two months, and oh that was god. too long because we were going to perform in like three weeks. And you when, know, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Learn Spanish in two months. No, no. So I go to another book. It says learn Spanish in six weeks. Now we're getting there, but it's still <laughs> not much. Then another one, learn Spanish in two weeks. No, no, no. Then learn Spanish in 24 hours. I'm going like, this is the book I need. So this I'm book, writing a book right now. It's called uh, uh, Give Up on Spanish Today. <laughs> yeah, right now. <laughs> And it was all nouns in Spanish that are the same in Spanish as in English, like Toyota. Uh, right. You know, <laughs> so it's like it was totally useless. Like, so no. I thought I would learn this show by memory, just like uh, Shocking Blue learned, she's got it. Oh, baby, she's got it. I'm right, your right. Venus. I'm your fire. What's your desire? So I felt like I could learn the entire show in whatever. So I applied myself. And back then, belief was all you really needed. And I learned the show phonetically, absolutely wow. not having any idea what I was saying. And our first show was in Indio, California. And so I drove out there, Jenny Gago, uh, Rick Fitz, uh, they were in the company. Uh, and I remember... The first show we did was for like, uh, I, somehow I thought the older kids came first, but maybe let's say first, second, and third graders. I nailed it. I didn't make a single mistake, not a single mistake of the show. And it was perfect. And everyone's congratulating me right on, man. You did it perfectly. Second show. The, you know, the euphoria, the adrenaline is flowing in my head. And suddenly, like, the entire show turns into alphabet soup in my head. Like, I cannot see uh, Como Esta in front of me at all. Nothing. So my first line, I believe, in the show was... Um, uh, Hola. Jova, jovencita. Como se gusto, jovencita. You know, or, or you know, something... I ended up saying, uh, how are you, little girl? Sit on it and squeeze. <laughs> wow. So, like, I got fired by Jenny on stage. She said, you know, all the kids, are whatever I said, it was something extremely naughty. And I had no idea what words were coming out of my mouth. Uh, no, but te gusto, mis hombres. Oh, Siena, jovencita. You know, like, so, so, wait, you, know, so you got fired on stage? On stage. She just wow. whispered to I've me. I've never heard of that. You're fired. That's got to be the worst way to be fired ever. <laughs> well, well, but all the kids are screaming. The teachers are running back and forth, putting their hands over their ears. And, and at the end of the show, Jenny says, how did you know how to say that? How did you, how did you, I said, I don't even know what I said. It was just a series of nonsense syllables. I can't help it if it turned out to be something profane in your language. I'm so sorry. You know, anyway, uh, they, uh, they did fire me that day. 
And they hired me back about six weeks later because they needed someone else for the English-speaking company. Ah, okay. So I got moved from the Spanish company to the English-speaking company. And it was a godsend because I had one of the hardest things for any actor going to California is you need money for acting classes, for waiting for a job to happen. Were were you broke at the time? Were you like completely broke? Not completely broke. I had money, birthday money that I brought from Dallas. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the money I had. And so I... I had a real job that made anywhere from 120 to $240 a week. And so I rented a house that cost $450 a month. And Beth paid the utilities when she came out and we had a real job. And we went out to eat one night a week. We, you know, uh, beer night was Friday night. It's actually not too bad. You guys weren't doing too badly. <laughs> About how, um, yeah. Not too going, bad at going all. Out, went to- how did you? So you can't even get a parking first, garage in LA for four fifty a month. Well, now, yeah, forget <laughs> it. Yeah, but so how did you? What was your first? Uh, like, did you always want to do film and TV? Was that something? I mean, always, and you you just hope you know you try to do various. So so I had two breakthrough auditions. One audition always say yes to everything. My acting teacher at the University of Illinois, which I never would have met him if I didn't go for that godforsaken year of Illinois, Ed K. Martin, was the greatest teacher I ever had. He and Jack Clay. Ed Ed K. Martin was brilliant, and you run into students of his all over the country, and like Holly Hunter was a student of Ed K. And you know, so you run into these people all over the country. Oh, Ed K. Best in the. He says. Always say yes to any acting opportunity. When I first arrived in California, before I had the house, when I when when I rented a little apartment before Beth came out from Illinois, I came out first. Uh, I joined an acting class. Like Ed said, always join an acting class. And he told me which acting class to join. It was with a protege of his from UCLA. So I went into Maria Gobetti's class and... Sunday from like 10 in the morning to about three in the afternoon was her class. And someone came in and said, we're doing uh, time of your life, uh, equity waiver theater. And we lost our Dudley Bosdwick. Uh, would anyone volunteer? And I go, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> now I knew the play and I knew Dudley Bosdwick. I knew I saw Raul Julia do it. Mm. I, so I had seen the play and Dudley Bostwick is the guy who's waiting for his girlfriend to come, and he's sitting outside the cafe by a payphone, and most of his part is just doing little monologues on the payphone. You know, Myrtle, will you, you know, whatever, will you please come or whatever, just on the payphone. I thought, well, I could learn that, much like I learned the Spanish thing. You know, yeah, that's a, a cakewalk after that. <laughs> so I learned the part of Dudley Bostwick that week, and we're opening – I'm opening that weekend. So I have two or three rehearsals. And we get the word that Fran Bascom, huge, huge casting director, was coming on Saturday night. I'm thinking like, oh, my God, this is my chance. Fran Bascom is coming. I could show her what I'm doing because Dudley Bostwick, even though I'm mainly alone, it's a very showy role about this guy waiting for – this woman to come if she will love him or not. And he puts his heart out there for it. So anyway, Saturday night comes, I'm sitting in my little table outside the cafe next to the payphone. Uh, ring, ring, payphone rings. 
I pick it up and it's my girlfriend and I'm talking to her on the phone and I start one of my monologues and I'm talking to her and the payphone falls off the wall. Oh. <laughs> so I reach down and pick it up and those payphones are heavy. So I'm <laughs> holding the payphone yeah. and I start walking across the stage, talking, holding the payphone and then the wire connecting from <laughs> my mouthpiece, the payphone falls off. And now I'm holding a payphone, a hand thing that's not connected to anything. And I drop the payphone and now I'm just talking on the empty receiver. <laughs> Did you say anything like, were you like, hey, I can't hear you that well. I think it's something I, I, at your end. No, <laughs> I just kept going. I just kept going, walking back. And then at the end, I picked up the payphone, put it back over in its area of the stage because I still had some speeches to do on it for the show. Were people and laughing go, when that happened? Yes. <laughs> I <laughs> wouldn't imagine. It was, it was a moment of what we call unintentional humor. Uh, <laughs> unexpected, unwanted, unintentional. I'm sitting backstage simmering in failure, absolutely broiling in failure. Uh, I guess after that week, everyone was trying to cheer me up. The next weekend, like Monday or Tuesday, I get a phone call from Fram Bascom's office. She said she'd like me to come in. She thinks she has a, a job for me. Like a pitch man for AT&T? I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> I go in and I said, Fran, I, I can't believe, I can't believe you called me. You found my number and you called me. And she got my number from the acting class and from the people at the production she called me up. I went to her office. She, I said, how is it? It was a disaster. She says, you're the kind of actor I'm looking for mm -hmm. because you didn't stop for anything. You know, wow. you, kept, you kept to it. You did it. And so out here, Fran Bascom was my angel, and she, would, she cast all the big shows. You know, she she cast so many of the big shows out here and the Mary Tyler Moore shows. She cast so many big things. So she was Did she all, she get your first thing on like your first TV thing. Yeah, she she got me several of my first TV little what the, TV. What was the what first was, like, TV? Can you thing? remember your first one? Uh, I, I know I did. Uh, well, Fran didn't get me this one. Uh, Alice Mindy Marin got oh. me that one. Uh Big that show. was a that was again a case where I didn't audition for it, and I had auditioned for Mindy Marin about six times before, because Fran recommended me. But like, I never got a call back, nothing. And it was the day of the show, and they lost their actor, so they uh, asked me to come in, and if I would read for the producer, and he accepted me. Then I would go directly into hair and makeup and then perform in front of a live audience that night. So, wow. so I did it. I got it. And so that was like my, I think my first sitcom job. Do you remember what that, do you remember what that was like? I mean, you probably do. Cause it was like, I mean, being your first experience, some of that, but you had done live theater. So it wasn't I'd that done like live much theater and sitcom is very much like live theater. I mean, you do have a live audience and you do have a script you know, that you're working with. And, uh, and, and that was a, a, a huge, you know, that was a huge breakthrough for me. Do you, um, what was your first movie you did? Oh, boy. Was it Nobody's Fool? 
I, I think maybe before was Swing Shift, the oh, first Swing real Shift, movie. Right. Is that the one? Is is that with Goldie Hawn? It's Goldie Hawn, right? Yeah. And that was because Jonathan Demme was a huge fan of Beth's writing. Oh, and so oh, wow. he wanted to direct Crimes of the Heart. He wanted something. So he cast Beth in that movie as a Bible selling some a girl on the street. And he cast me as French DeMille, like some. Uh, Documentary narrator. So, I'm looking at it. Social social director at a factory, and 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 in the, and then I doubled. They had a documentary, and I did the documentary voice. Yeah. You know, but but it was that was different from French DeMille. So I did two things on that movie. And, and yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say. So then, did that? So what? From there, was it kind of like? Did it kind of start to spiral or was it was there like time no. in between things a lot? No, it, was, it was all miserable. And it was like, <laughs> you know, you're trying to get an audition here, there and everywhere. So I got uh, Beth wanted me to be in her play Miss Firecracker contest that was going to be at Buffalo Studio Arena Theater, you know, in Buffalo, New York. So I went to do Whose Life Is It Anyway in mm. Buffalo and then. Uh, to play Delmont and Beth's play the Miss Firecracker contest. So uh, Catherine Grody, who played the lead in that in Buffalo, uh, she was married to Mandy Potemkin, mm. uh, big star in New York. So Catherine had a lot of connections, and she asked me if I had any agent when I was doing the show. And she said, and I said, well, not really. And she says, well, I'm going to call my agent, Jeff Hunter, and have him come see if he'll come out and see you. So he came to Buffalo to watch the Miss Firecracker contest for Catherine. And then right afterwards, he went back to Manhattan, called me up and said, do you have an agent? And I said, no, sir. He said, well, you do now. And he says, on your next day off, come to Manhattan. I went to Manhattan. He had about 17 auditions for me. He said, do you need a place to stay? Do you need money? We're going to take care of you. And he, Jeff... Jeff Hunter was connected with the big agencies in Los Angeles. I didn't have an agent anymore in Los Angeles who lived with his mother. And when you knocked on his door, like his mother and the cat came to the door. Oh, yes, he's back in the back. Now I had like one of the top agencies in the country because of Jeff Hunter. DHKPR was the was the agency, which became Triad, which which was huge right, right. and they're the ones who started sending me out for movies and television show that were a list projects who and was the that, guy with the uh the the mom and the cat was that mike Ovitz eventually <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> i think i think his name was uh I, his last name was de la roca oh, oh uh, yeah jeff de la roca or something you know i thought i just signed with him it's, actually yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure you're doing <laughs> he has well. two cats now, so it's great. Um and, and when I was nominated uh for a Tony Award, I did not win, but I was nominated in two thousand one for Mornings at Seven, Jeff Hunter was there. Mm-hmm. And I went afterwards to see him and I said, Jeff, I want to thank you so much because I would not have a career if it weren't for you. And he said, Well, what did I do? I I said, You saw me in Miss Firecracker and Buff in Buffalo. And then he said, I did really, I don't wow. remember any of that. Well, if I did good, good oh, wow, that's you. hilarious. Had um, no idea. He changed my life. 
one of the first things I remember seeing you in was uh, Thelma and Louise and actually Seinfeld. Um, so, you know, we're both really big Seinfeld fans. And yeah. that's pretty that's that episode is pretty iconic. Yeah. Um, Mark Mark Hirschfeld was the casting director of that. And now I think he's probably president of TV at NBC is some big. He is highly promoted, very, very competent knowledgeable guy and he called me up at home and he said Stephen we're having trouble making this part of this faith healer uh funny uh can you come and give it a try and I said sure so I rode my bicycle to CBS Radford which was right down the street went in I met Jerry and I, I, I sat with Mark and then we read through the part and Jerry was laughing because that's funny yeah that's funny. Oh, that's okay. So anyway, I ended up with that part. And I have to say this about the people at Seinfeld. I have, now that I've been on tons of sitcoms, there is no group like the Seinfeld group as professionals, as amazing actors. I run into really? Jason. Yeah, they all are amazing. And you were on amazing. it early too. Even I was point. on it the first season. Yeah. And and they worked so hard. I've been on so many sitcoms where like people don't work that hard. They worked so hard to make everything work in every show. It was just amazing. And uh I I uh, the work ethic on that. They deserve everything they got. Is, is that a show? I mean, I know it was a while ago, but like, is that something that people bring up to you a lot? Is that one? Because I mean, are there like certain things? Well, they, they that, bring it up. They usually bring up Groundhog Day. I was going to say, so that must be the one that does. Does, does that get annoying after a while that that, that mm, that's the one that never because back? really. It's a good movie. Great movie. And yeah, it's uh, a great movie. It's a good part. And. You know, if it were a terrible movie or a terrible show and they liked me in something, then it'd be like, well, yeah, I wish it turned out a little better. But Groundhog Day was like one of the few perfect films, you know, certainly I've ever seen or been a part of. It was it was just a film could go wrong so many ways, mm -hmm. so many ways. How, uh, great how, how do you mean like what? Um, and that movie, was, that movie has been kind of ripped off a lot since then. You know, they've yeah. done a lot of those types of movies. The well, time now it's movies, like, a, you know, it's like a genre of movie yeah. now. Like they, people literally use that template. What like, Palm Springs, Palm mm -hmm. Springs. And then the, um, the Tom, Tom Cruise, Cruise one. Yeah. The, and then Happy Death Day. They did oh, that. Happy they, Death Day. <laughs> Absolutely. They, um, Deep cut. And they right actually there. reference it in it. They, re they, they make it like they're, they're kind of like make light of it. Like, okay. And we're I saw that day. in Happy Death Day, uh, the person who's playing my part is a woman with in a black leotard with short hair. You know, like yeah. doing aerobics. It's like that was the Ned Ryerson in that movie. I'm going like, whoa. Yeah, no, they went in a different direction, definitely. <laughs> they definitely did, yeah. One thing, though, we have a friend of the show who's actually really Harold Ramis's daughter. Is she not? And, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Molly, and, yeah. Molly, and you actually. worked with Harold Ramis, obviously, in that movie. He's definitely a genius. I, know, I think that genius. was the movie where he kind of had a falling out with Bill Murray, but I don't know if you saw any of that. I don't know if if you call, you know they knew each other way too long for it to be what you'd say is a falling out when you're working on a film you're 
in the middle of a war. And, mm. and so as a director, you're trying to keep everything together and make everything happen. So, the, you know, I know that uh, when, when Harold w was, was ill, you know, at the end, he, he had the problem with the surgery. He had a simple surgery, and then that led to an infection, oh. which led to his death. You know, you know, it was something simple, and then it was not simple. And I know that Bill came to be with him at the end too so you know you've been through a lot in show business you 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 get a lot of good and bad from the people you work with can i so you you said you know making movies and kind of like go in the wrong direction and easily so what is it like because you've, you've worked on so many things so can you tell us more about that because that's an interesting thing i think people you know most people don't understand what it's like to actually make a film and be on a film set when you started doing that, well, you know, because you you were a fan of movies, um, how was it weird to get used to? Because it's nothing like you would imagine it being, or was it at all like you thought it would it would be like? Well, there's nothing to prepare for it, and, and you know, certainly in school <laughs> at SMU, yeah, I was drama. Say. We read Shakespeare. We did scenes from Restoration drama. We didn't do one, we did not read one television script or movie script. So we didn't even see what that was like or what was it about. So I was lucky and some of the first things I did were like sitcoms, which were like short plays. Oh, right, you know, right. in fact, Norman Lear said that they used to call it the play when he was doing All in the Family. Uh, they, they view it as they viewed it as a play. Uh, movies are quite different. Uh, but but there's still. Do you like a, doing it? Do you like film acting, or did you get used to it, or what was it? Yeah, like? you get used to it because you you see. If if I could put it this way, in in theater, the hit of theater is reality. So an audience comes; they know you've learned lines. They know you've rehearsed. You're wearing costumes. There's a stage and a curtain. But at the same time, if you could transport that audience into your state of being, into where, you know, it is a magical thing happened. When I was doing Mornings at 7 with, with Julie Haggerty, uh, she played my girlfriend in that. It's such an exquisite play. Uh, there was one show in which... Uh, I was playing Homer, and it's a scene where I have to tell her I love her, but I never use the word love or I or anything. I, I just don't use the words. And I looked at her, and I became so overwhelmed by my feelings for Julie and for the play. And we had been on Broadway now for months, and we were a very successful show, a lot of Tony nominations. I looked at Julie and I was going to go, Myrtle, I. And Julie stayed with me. You know, she, she knew I had the line. She didn't try to help me find the line. And it was nothing. Nothing happened. But I was thinking about how much I loved her and how much I loved the part and how much I loved this whole experience of doing this beautiful play, Mornings at Seven. And whatever it was, it transferred to the audience because you could hear the audience start to cry. You could hear you could hear the ripple through there 
of tension. It was a moment of theatricality that worked to the, they knew it was a play, but for a while, the audience was transported by the play right. and, and, and transported by everything. When you do a film, everybody knows it's funny, especially if it's, if it's got gremlins in it, especially if it's got hobbits <laughs> in it. You know, if the camera's moving around, you have special effects, Spider-Man, three Spider-Men, then you really know it's fake because it's all the actors who played Spider-Man. It's like, oh, they're, they got all the actors together. So you know the whole thing's fake, so you're not trying to sell reality, even in the special effects films. The thing that sells film is surprise. If you have moments of surprise with the audience, then it comes to life. And that's why great directors, like some great directors I've worked with, like Ridley Scott, and, uh, Barbe Schroeder, and people like that, you know, they, Harold Ramis, they create situations where there is surprise. And there's plenty of that in Groundhog Day, where, you know, Harold Ramis sets up a surprise and he's able to capture it on film. So it transcends editing. It transcends music. It transcends a camera shot. Uh, sometimes when you watch a movie, something could be ruined by one bad performance. And you go like, oh, God, why don't they just kill him? Or how'd he end up in this show? Uh, bad music, uh, a bad right, right. edit, and, and you just are turned off by it. Or I'll yeah. tell you what turns me off, which is a kiss of death. For me, if you're in a movie where they show outtakes during the credits at the end, mm. that means that the producer and the director and everybody, they don't have any faith that this comedy worked. Really? Interesting. I, you, that's my, I mean, that's what you, I mean. I could buy that. I could buy that. Do you feel, do you, I mean, you probably know, so like uh, being there, there was kind of a famous thing where um, they did that at the end of the movie, being there, and they say that, that might have cost Peter Sellers the Oscar because wow. it's like outtakes of him and it kind of takes you out of his performance a little bit. Yeah, yeah you have him laughing on the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him laughing, yeah. And that was such an amazing movie, an mm -hmm. amazing performance. But I see it all the time on comedies that don't quite work, that are kind of loud but don't quite cut it. They always do these <laughs> in, in credits outtakes where basically it's just the actors not remembering their lines and laughing and going like, oh, I guess I, know. I gotta shoot myself in the head. You, you know. Yeah, you're, so you're kind of like, I'm glad you guys had so much fun. <laughs> yeah. But you're, but you're actually so good. I mean, you're good in any role, but you're, I mean, I see you as such a comedic actor a lot. Uh, do you like doing uh, comedy roles? Yeah, how did that, did that kind of naturally happen or was that something right. you were Did you do something you at? see yourself doing? It, it, it kind of naturally happened. I, I always like comedy. You know, I always liked doing it. And then when I was doing uh, The Miser, I was 15 years old uh, at Kimball High School playing the part of an 80-year-old man, of course. <laughs> you know, that's the way you do it in high school. Oh, how are you? <laughs> you know, all this kind of thing. So our our teacher, Mary Curtis, brought in David Nichols, who was a big shot actor in Dallas, Texas, to be a secret director coach of our production like mary was really great at bringing in help and yeah. so she had david nichols come in and we were doing our and he would stop and then david would say okay 
Stephen, we're going to talk about comedy technique. A big part of comedy technique is the hold. So you have to do the moment and the hold. You know, you don't don't run through don't through a bit don't run through a bit. Make your point, move on. And and he says speed is important in comedy and all this important. So David, over the the course of this time, he instructed me on what comedy technique is when I was fifteen. So from that point on, I felt like I had a grip on in college and anything else on any kind of comedic role I want. I saw where the jokes were, I saw right. how to hit and how to freeze. Uh, you so know, you had a little bit of a head start on maybe it's almost like you knew like a little bit of a secret before anyone else did. A head start. And when I did Groundhog Day, we were shooting my scene with Bill. We started shooting my scene with Bill first shot of the first day of the shoot. Oh wow. Wow. And I and I no was, pressure. <laughs> I was nervous as a jackrabbit. Yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, what, what's that like? Like showing everybody, like, hey Bill Murray, okay, let's do it. Yeah. And and not only that, but I've been working on another film in California at the time who had the same uh line producer as Groundhog Day. And what that meant was they knew how to get around the SAG rules of how long you're supposed to give an actor rest in between shots. <laughs> so I was working on I think it was Calendar Girl in Paris, California. Then I had to take a car, two-hour car trip to LAX that afternoon, fly to Chicago, get to Woodstock, Illinois, where we're shooting. I get to the my little hotel at about 2 in the morning, and my call time is 6.45 in the morning. So I'm thinking like, oh, God. So I have like three and a half hours to sleep. Then I have to... Get it together. Bill Murray. I have to wake up. So I'm going down. I, I see Harold Ramis. I come over and see him. And uh, I start saying hello to Harold Ramis. And Bill interrupts and says, show me what you're going to do. Show me what you're going to do. And Harold Ramis said, no, go easy. Go easy. And Bill says, show me. Show me what you're going to do. I said, well, just. <laughs> bing, bing, bing. He says, okay, you could do that. So. <laughs> It, but it was never, so again, we go out. There's about 500 people in the town there watching. And Bill and I start shooting. And right before the first take, I look out at the crowd. And there in the front row of the crowd is David Nichols. <laughs> wow. David really? Nichols. Oh, really? And how that miracle happened. I had seen David four times in my life. The first time was when he coached me at Kimball. Uh, the second time was my first day in Los Angeles. Uh, I had his number. His brother, Chris, in Dallas gave me David's number in L.A. I called him up, and he said, well, do you want to have lunch with me today at the studio? I'm working on a film. And I go, well, sure, David. So I go out to the studio. He's He's in the art department working on New York, New York, and I have lunch with Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, Liza Minnelli, and David Nichols, my first day in Los Angeles. Good first and I'm, day. Your first day in Los Angeles. <laughs> and I'm going like, oh my God. And Robert You're, De Niro kept looking at me like, who's this guy? What's this guy here at this You must stadium? have been like, wow, this is going to be easy. Oh man, here I, here I am at the head. T- 
The next time I saw David was in Memphis, Tennessee, when I got married to my wife, Anne. And David was working in the art department on Great Balls of Fire. And I saw him there, and he was picked up from the art department there and said, well, come on out and do the art for uh, Groundhog Day. And so he was one of the people in charge of making it look like there was still snow on the ground when Bill and I were oh, shooting. Wow. Hey, where was, was it wow. filmed again? It was in California? Woodstock, Illinois. Oh, Illinois. Which is oh, an wow. hour outside of Chicago. It was cold as a bear's ass. It was so cold. It was like an army experiment. But sometimes it would snow, it would sleet, it would rain, the snow would vanish, it would come back. And so David was putting like sugar or whatever they put and crystal stuff in the trees to make it look all the same because the day had to be the same. Meteorological. Oh, right. Gosh. God, that sounds like a nightmare. It had to look the same. Yeah. So David was there on the art department. So, so in terms you, of that, no, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just, Eric. I mean, it was such a kind of a different type of movie. When Did you think maybe in your back of your mind the movie might not have worked like while you were making it because it was such an well, odd? I knew enough about movies at this point mm -hmm. to know you never know when it's going to work. Mm -hmm. And I used to go out and see all the movies, everything I was in, every TV show I was on, we'd have big viewing parties and have popcorn and beer and, oh, this is Steven on, on this and this, and let's go. And I had given up on that by the time of Groundhog Day. And even though I did, I did see it, I was invited to the premiere. I, I went, you know, I saw it right first day, but it wasn't like I was going to have a big, and I was amazed at how beautiful the film was. And I went like, damn, it like, for me, it felt like a perfect movie. And the music Harold Ramis wrote for it, the Groundhog Day song was hilarious. The uh, there there was just so many lucky accidents in there. Uh, you know, just an example. You know, Bill was the very last shot. As Bill is supposed to take Andy out the gate and into the town. Oh, the Groundhog's there. You yeah. know, you know all that. Well. We were in the middle of kind of a little snow flurry, and when you do a shot in the snow, you have about 40, feet, 40 people on the crew, and you have footprints. So in between each take, you have to wait till all the snow is corrected to where it looks right. perfect. So they started to do a take. Bill runs out there with Andy, and the snow had come up so high— that the gate wasn't op could not open, so he couldn't open it as normal. And Bill, being <laughs> Bill, not being perturbed by anything, lifted her up and carried her, lifted like through the, you know, like through the threshold, the marriage threshold, lifted her over the front gate. Then he jumped over the front gate, and they ran down the street together because he didn't want to do another take. So that's <laughs> is that's the shot in the movie, right? Yes. Wow. And because he didn't want it to stop for thirty minutes while they <laughs> clear the snow and make sure the gate opens again. No, he's an improviser. Mm. So we we work with what we got, and he's like this. He's that fast. So and it, it worked. Was, was that a it movie? It was beautiful. Was that a movie that um? I mean, you, you probably get recognized a lot, but yeah. what has your life been like in terms of that? Because you probably get recognized a lot now, but is it a thing where people are like, wait, after that movie, were they like, did it get annoying? Did people come up to you and just go like, Ned, no? Well, that? no, because a lot of the people who 
recognized me were producers and they would say like you know we're doing a tv show can will you be on it i didn't have to really audition for a bit after that saying well we want ned ryerson on our show can you do this can you do this so i did several sitcoms after that based on the momentum of groundhog day but there's a natural deterioration to acting you know as a as an actor you do especially in the old days you would do theater and then hopefully you would get a film part And then hopefully you would stay a major film actor for the rest of your life. But with the advent of television, and especially 90% of television is comedy, you know, they are looking for actors who do comedy and film to put them in TV shows. And so, you know, after Groundhog Day, I ended up doing a lot of TV shows, and then you end up doing fewer movies. And, and, you Um. know... and but it's great because you're doing a lot of TV shows and you're paying the rent. That's for sure because TV pays you more than film. And TV and, now and, is kind of taking over film, really, in a lot of ways. I mean, everything's on totally. TV now. Everything's on TV. And everything. you, um, well, definitely with streaming and everything, and then cable with the when cable and like became like prestige TV. Um, because you are right, so you, you were on Californication for a little while, yeah, which is a show I, I loved. And it's fabulous, fabulous. Not for everyone, but it's fabulous. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great show. And your part again was really funny, but um, you did like nudity on it, right? Uh, which, I did. I so did. what had you ever done that in your career? What was that? Only in my life, not in my it. career. Yeah, right. well, you know, to me, it it does, you know. In in college, you know, when we were young studly guys, you know, we played the Incan Indians and Royal Hunt of the Sun in loincloths. You know, we did stuff like that. <laughs> or in Caligula, we covered ourselves with grease paint and wore jock straps and, you know, you know silver grease yeah. paint and walked on stage playing the slave boys. Yeah, you know, we, we, you know, we, we did all that. But, but to me, you know, when you're naked in a film. It just depends on what the film is, what the part is, because you aren't really aware of your nakedness. It's the person opposite of you who has to deal with your nakedness because you're just there and you're here. But, you know, I'm working with Pam Atlon, who's like the best to be naked with. And and she (laughs) is the one of the best people to be naked with in the world. And, you know, it's, are you, you wary did, of it at all? Because, I mean, that show was very, that was a big part of that show. It was a big part of the show. I didn't, I had not seen the show uh, when when I auditioned for it. I didn't know what it was. And then I got on the set and I began to see what it was and how gifted that cast was and how gifted Tom Caponis, the writer and executive producer, is. The directors were so good. Uh, it was one of the greatest feelings among a cast ever. So you felt you were in a safe, safe place, right. even though they were filming you naked all the time and, and, and having sex, you know, and stuff all the time. I, re- I remember, you know, they go like, well, what's it like, you know, doing sex? You know, so there was one, you know, I'm always having to have sex with Pam. And, and so <laughs> there's one scene in which I'm naked and uh, in in the contract, they give you these contracts, SAG contracts about being in naked scenes. 
And it says all the things you realize that this could be, and they're going to show you in sexual situations, but there always has to be a physical barrier between the actor, male and female actor. There always has to be a physical barrier. So in one show, the physical barrier between Pam Adlon and I was a stay free maxi pad. So I'm shooting. I'm That's shooting, how I have sex in real life. Yeah. I'm shooting with her for two, three hours with my face buried in a stay free maxi pad. Oh and Pam God. the whole time is making all sorts of jokes like, oh, God, kill me. You know, I got three <laughs> children. This is. God, Tobolowsky, this is the worst. Can you believe this? You know, oh, help me, please. Just burn the film when this, you know, it's just hilarious. We were just laughing so hard about anything. And you have to, you have to learn how to have sex without having sex. And this is a tip I give people. I, I told it to David Chen when we we did the podcast, I, I said this the Tobolowski Files podcast. I said this is the thing you have to imagine: if you're a guy, and they're in a close-up of you, you have to imagine someone is cutting your toenails with a toenail clipper, and and you know so they're you know it's a little oh oh yeah okay oh okay okay yeah right. So you have to imagine that they're clipping your t- and and sometimes it gets a little too close to the whoa oh yeah okay 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 that's good that's good you know you have to imagine everyone at home imagine your toes getting clipped by someone else right now and they're not doing the greatest job that's what really you- how did you come up with did you come up with that or did someone give you that as a tip no no man I came up with that myself. that's a good one. When you're when you're a pro, you come up with these little things by yourself, or or you just do it and you go like, hmm, this is just like having my toes clipped. <laughs> and it is a thing. I mean, you know, the people always talk about. You see interviews with actors, and they're like, you know, is there what's what is it like? Is is there kind of like something between you and the other person? But it's kind of like it must be odd, right? Because there is a crew there, so how it can't really feel like a sexual thing, right? It's no, yeah, well, of- it's not like that. But like for example, you know, I truly loved and loved pam adlon i do i i just yeah, yeah, she's she's i worship her she's a fantastic person really so you know you you have that feeling for her and that respect for her and uh and and so whenever you you do these kind of scenes you know you you find the thing about the person that you find dear if, if it's quirky or whatever but you know they they're not calling my number <laughs> to do those scenes now that's <laughs> right. just for the young actors out there yeah. um, well can I, I mean you no go ahead what no no you can i had to question about another show but uh well i was was it gonna because i was gonna bring up silicon valley oh, there, there yes. we go go yeah. ahead what that was the question <laughs> um so with silicon valley how did how did that that's another show that i love that's um, crazy that that was that was crazy so was your character audition- based on anyone uh in real life because i know that a lot of characters on that show kind of were I think so. I and and they showed me a film and I can't remember his name now, but he was a big like one of those guys, you know, not at maybe I don't think he was at Apple, I think Microsoft, but one of these big guys they showed me him doing the hey, hey, you know, he they showed me this, but <laughs> I remember I auditioned and I want to get I auditioned I think like in June. Uh 
really wonderful casting director. I, I read for it. I thought it went pretty well. And then I didn't hear a word, not a word. So let's say June 20th, not a word. I'm doing a film festival in Hot Springs, Arkansas, like first or second week of October. So June, July, wow. August, September, October, my agent and manager are on the phone at the same time. That usually means big news. And they go, Stephen, uh, they want to call you back for Silicon Valley. I go, what? That was like half a year ago. I didn't hear a thing. Of it. They said, well, uh, are you able to come in today? And I go, no, I'm in Hot Springs, Arkansas. I, I said, I'll, I'll, I'll come in tomorrow. I'll come in tomorrow. So, and I said, and I don't know the scene anymore. It's, you know, it's out of my head. So they sent me the material again and I flew back. God, Anne was so excited. My wife was so excited. Oh my God, Stephen, this is so exciting. So, and and I had not seen the show ever. Oh, okay. You know, when I auditioned for it, uh, I looked, it was the first, back in June, I looked on YouTube to see if they had any episodes and they had some from the first season because I think I come on season three or something like three and four. I think something like that. Yeah. Uh, somewhere in there. So I saw some of the first shows. So I got an idea who the characters were. And you were, you were working with Mike judge, right? He's another Texas guy, right? Mike judge. Yeah. He's yeah, he's, yeah. That guy's a genius. Yeah. A genius, yeah. a genius. Uh, but, but, but I mean, that they're all, they're all so good. And I asked so, you, so like coming on, cause you've done that a lot. where like, you'll come on a show that's already kind of been established and will be a popular show. What is that like? Is that hard sometimes because the cast totally. already kind of like that they have a dynamic and you're, you're yeah. the new guy? Like, and it's wh- like, how do who, they treat you? Are they well, like, well, the thing that's most important is that you've auditioned for the executive producers. So they're the ones who really call the shots. So, and you've worked with the exec, you know, I've worked with Mike Judge. In, in the callback, I, I worked with everybody in the callback. Everybody got their time to work with me and see what I was going to do. So I knew I had their approval when when I went in. I knew I knew I had their approval. And so uh, if Thomas or you know or anybody in the cast was like, "What's this guy going to do?" You know, I just did what I did kind of in the audition, and 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 the way I. I saw doing it and it took a little while of me kind of getting used to everything to kind of fill in, fit in right to, to, to that, to, to see what the whole comic structure of everything was. But it kind of fit maybe because your character was kind of supposed to be maybe a little bit like on the outside of them sort of. Yeah. 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 And it fit because I'm supposed to be older. I'm supposed to be not with it. You know, yeah. like the box, you know, my, my, my whole thing is. Did you have you know, a ponytail control- on that show? I wasn't sure. No, no. Oh, I, I thought you might have. Okay. That might've been it, another show though. I, I had a ponytail in, uh, gosh, I had a ponytail on Las Vegas and I had a ponytail on this, uh, comedy thing with, with the oceanographers, uh, where, where they were, uh, it was, uh, a debate about, uh, was a pedophilia pro or 
or con and I was pro <laughs> pro pedophilia. And so they have me in this flowered shirt and this and I'm living on an island off the coast of Samoa or what I kind of remember that. What okay, yeah. <laughs> It was the guys who did big time in Hollywood, Florida. You know, just okay. those, just the funniest people in the world. Um, Alex I just Alexander and Dan Schimpf, so funny. Um, so I, you know, this is kind of we were talking about earlier. You know how you, you know, kind of you were good at comedy, and it kind of there was a natural progression of that. What do you? I mean, was that something that like? What do you, do you think it's harder to do that than dramatic acting? I know a lot of people are saying yeah. comedy is the hardest thing. Do you? And also being an actor, do you would you say the 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 key to being funny a lot of times is not trying to be funny? Do you think that's a trap people you, fall you, into a lot? Is something Harold Ramis, yes, yeah, something Harold Ramis said is important for all the actors out there who hear this who interest in comedy. Whenever you, Harold Ramis said, comedy lives in the two shot. So in Groundhog Day, he made sure that Bill and I were always in the same frame together. Hmm. He says, because you have to see the world and you have to see the aberrant factor in the world. Now, the thing that's so amazing about Bill's performance when you watch Groundhog Day, in the scenes with me, Bill is the world. He plays the normal guy. He plays right. every man and I play the weird wild guy. But then right after the scene with me, he goes to the diner and he's the crazy guy drinking coffee out of the pot, and Andy McDowell plays the world. Interesting. And Bill, interesting. And Bill in that movie shifts from being the world to being the aberrant force in the world. You have to. So when I come onto a show, when I read a comedy script, I see like, am I the world, or am I the X factor in the world that isn't seeing things right? So. I get in a show like one day at a time. I'm Dr. Berkowitz. Uh, very, so, that, that show was canceled too soon, by the way. That was a very good show. Yeah, it was just as good as it could be. Yeah. And so I figure, you know, if I'm in a scene with Rita Marino, I'm the world. She's the force in the world. You, you know, and if we're in the doctor's office, uh, Justina is who was the lead of the show, mm -hmm. Justine Machado. Oh, right. She is the world. She is the world. Pen Penelope, she's the world. And I'm the aberrant force in the world. I'm the doctor who, who isn't that good at what I do. And I just can't wait to retire. And I'm not so good. Uh, you know, so. So do you think some, sometimes people get caught up not knowing what they're supposed to be playing in the season? Yes. So they're kind of and, like, and they don't know they're supposed to not be doing as much. They're like, I bet. need to be funny too. So. Yes. Oh, I. Oh, they get all the funny stuff. No, no. You're just as funny if if you're watching something that's absolutely ridiculous and you're just straight. That's really you're interesting because, yeah, a lot of people don't realize it, but a lot of things that I think are funny when I watch are the, you know, the quote unquote straight man, the guy yeah. who's just reacting to what's happening. In fact, I think most of the time I think that's funnier. So those, air, take a look. those naked gun movies or an airplane movies are all about that. All those guys. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect example. Uh, like on the Goldbergs, I principal ball, principal Earl ball. So a lot of times when I'm working with the students in, in, in the, I, I'm, I'm having to be carry the weight of the world and laws and order a school you know i'm maintaining of order and then the kids the goldberg kids are like aberrant forces 
you know, they're pulling pranks or they're doing something, so I have to be the disciplinarian. But when I'm with Beverly Goldberg, she's such a nutcase, I have to be the world. Mm. You know, with, with her, I have to, and, and, uh, I think there, there are cases when we get onto things that I love where suddenly I'm the aberrant force in it. Uh, what do you think? What do you like doing more? Oh, it's all, it's all the same. Mm -hmm. It's all the same. The, the trick of comedy, especially in television is recognizing what your role is and, and, and. What part of the comic thing are you supposed to do? And you have to do it quickly. The, the one thing out there, if they're young actors watching this, you'll get many, many directions by casting directors and directors. But one thing you will be the number one uh, note you will get from anyone. That was great. Can we do it again just a little quicker? Hmm. So as you are practicing, do the fast version. Don't worry about the slow version. Do the fast version and and learn to do transitions while you're talking. You don't have to stop and make transitions. You can make transitions either fast or slow while you're talking. You don't have to make a stop. You don't have to make a stop. Just keep going. And when you're doing it that fast, is I mean, when you first kind of figure that out, does it feel very unnatural because it's very, it's a lot You just have to know what you're thinking and making the thought process specific and quick. Would you also like, was there a time where you would, watch yourself and what is it like watching yourself? Do you like it or are you kind of like I, a lot I of quit watching myself because I was very, you know, because after each take, I would watch a take and go like, oh, that's good. Yeah, that works. That's mm-hmm. good. And then you see the movie and you see how chopped up it is. And they use, oh, this part of this take. The, mm-hmm. And you go like, oh, God, that didn't really work. And think, did you figure it out as it went on? Were you like, oh, I need to tone it down if I'm doing something like this? No, or, that's, that's the to, thing. If you're going from theater to film or something, what that's is up the... to the director? You know, it's up to the thing I learned about, you know, one thing in comedy is overstatement and understatement. You're saying the same thing. Overstatement. You're saying this doesn't ever happen in the world. An understatement. You're saying it doesn't ever happen in the world. So if I go like, what are you doing? It's the same beat as, what are you doing? It's the same beat. So you just have to see what is fitting in into the... I, I loved uh, Peter Noah, wonderful executive producer on comedy shows on television. He said, you have to determine what the key of comedy is. You have to take a look at what it is that makes it funny. And, you know, when I read a Goldberg script... I laugh out loud. Mm-hmm. When yeah. I read those scripts, I'm going like, this is absolutely hilarious. And what makes it hilarious is how, re- not that there are any jokes at all, but it, as to how absolutely ridiculous this is. Like this last season, uh, Beverly Goldberg is upset that the athletes in high school, in the high school, get more attention than the non athletes. Which is true. We all know that's true from high school. It's true. Another thing, comedy has to be true. So we know that's true. So she is protesting and she wants as much glory and glamour given to the non, <laughs> non-athletic because her son is non-athletic. That's really funny. So I have to do this speech, you know, for 
You know, this Thursday, all of the non-athletic, for our less coordinated seniors, for our less coordinated, and yet be very, for our less coordinated seniors, we will have our first non-athletic senior, <laughs> a non-athletic senior awards day. Yeah, you know, and, but you have to be very straight doing it because what you're doing is so ridiculous that you, but you're having to sell it, you know, as something that's in, in the name of, uh, not yeah. being prejudiced against the uncoordinated kids. Like There's no our, live audience on that show. That's just film. No, that show, right? yeah. it's all film. And that's another thing too. Don't watch yourself when you do any of this stuff because the director and the, they're all doing that for you. So you just do your thing, and they're gonna take what they want, throw out what they don't want. You you have the luxury of not having to worry if you're good or bad. They'll tell you, and they'll usually just tell you speed up. Um, I, do you have anybody, uh, there's a couple other things I want to ask. Um, so you're in basic instinct. I just out of curiosity, what, that was one of your earlier films. What was that experience? Like, just because that's such an iconic film and, um, it's sort of like, was the movie that, you know, it was the breakout for Sharon Stone. So do you get asked about that movie a lot? Cause it just, I I don't get asked about it. It was kind of interesting in that. I really love Paul. I really like that movie a lot. I just rewatched yeah. it recently. Paul Verhoeven was always a very edgy director. And I love film back then, especially. And I just thought, oh, if it's a Paul Verhoeven movie, it's going to be on the edge, something. So they asked me to read for Basic Instinct. So I did. I read for one of the police detectives, something like that. Another one of those things where I didn't hear a word, nothing for weeks. And then I heard, oh, they're shooting, you know, they're shooting. So I was working on a film with Will Smith. Where the Day Day Takes takes You. Yeah, I know that movie. Yeah, I think that's Will Smith's. I think it might be his first movie. I think it is. I haven't heard Uh, anything about him lately. Anything, any news about him? Yeah, what's he doing now? (laughs) Nothing nothing lately. Uh, Any awards? Will was in that. Ricky Lake was in that before. Altazar Getty, uh, Dermot Mulrooney, right? Um, Dermot Mulrooney. It, it was kind uh, of like a very like hip young Hollywood cast. Yeah. Oh, it, it was just a great, great, great cast. It was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful script. And I was playing, of course, a pedophile. So I was, <laughs> I was, uh, sed- you know, pl- trying to seduce one of the kids in the show. And I was working on Tuesday and Thursday. I was doing my part on Tuesday and Thursday. And my agent called me on Monday and said, like, uh, Dr. Verhoeven called and wanted to know if you could do a part in Basic Instinct on Wednesday. And I said, what am I doing? He says, well, it's not the part you read for, but he liked you. And so he wants to make you this psychologist. Here's the speech. Do you think you could do that in a couple of days? So I said... Sure, because back then I could memorize things pretty quickly. So I learned this speech, and I go like, oh, well, basically this is the speech that tries to explain to the audience what they're going to be watching for right. the next two hours. But it's mm. it's like I don't really say anything in the speech. You know, I, I think I remember saying she's either a real psychologist who's mentally ill and damaged, or she, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm getting yeah. all these either ors, but none of it. Uh, You're like, I remember a very basic instinct. Yeah, <laughs> I I did two feature films that week, so I was going like, God, 
this is fab. I'm doing Where the Day Takes You, which is such a great script. And I'm working with Paul Verhoeven in the middle on Wednesday. How fantastic. So it was very, it was a very cool week in my life. I really love that. Um, do you have anywhere? I, 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 I want to let you go. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. I feel like we've kept you on um, for a long time. But um, one last thing I want to ask now is because you're really into, you know, obviously you're into movies and TV and that's what you work at. What do you think of that? Like ha- where movies are at right now in turn? Cause it seems like there's a shift happening. And like what we were talking about before, how like TV has kind of become the more prestigious. It seems like, like that seems to be the one that um, a lot of gets a lot of praise heaped on it. And movies I think are kind of, you know, they're the whole talk of it being taken over by the, you know, IP franchises. What do you think of that and how it has it affected your, I think COVID has made it really tough on the movies. And I think, I think it's changed the landscape maybe permanently. We'll have to see. Do you mean in terms of how people watch things? mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you take a look years ago in the Academy. Uh, you know, we used to, uh, have double features and we go over to the Academy and on this wonderful screening room, 2000 seat theater, perfect sound, beautiful projection, 70 millimeter stuff. You know, we'd see double features every week of all the new shows, movies coming out, everything. And nobody's on their damn phones. Nobody's doing anything. Then that shrinks down to screeners and they send screeners. So you could watch it at home on your TV and you could watch the movie at home to judge on what you want. They give you 100 screeners, but of course people abuse that, start selling the screeners or copying them. So this year at the Academy, no screeners, and you've got, uh, you put in your code and you watch on your computer screen these movies while you're doing your email, while you're reading books, while, oh, you're babysitting your granddaughter. Oh, just, oh, the cat just jumped on the desk. So you're not watching movies the way you were meant to be watched, where your senses are removed, you're in a dark room, and you're you're fixed on that screen and the sound. Yeah. Movies cost so much to make. Uh, TV shows cost a lot less. So there's that cost. Uh, they, they did some sort of profit spend kind of way back when when the the kind of superhero movies were yeah, first starting and they found that like movies that cost 200 or 250 million dollars to make made a lot of money and second were movies that made like were under 5 million made a lot of money but the movies like Groundhog Day that right, cost 25 or 30 million they went broke so they had this other template of going like, well, we need to do more of these, you know, the bean counter said, we need to do more of these special effects movies. Well, now with motion capture, you know, they do all of the, they don't have to do the huge outlay of funds that they did to make a movie to do it on TV, to, to do it on streaming cable. They, they don't need the same amount because- right. You don't have these enormous vista shots that you do in a film. Mm-hmm. You know, in a film, you, you know, you have, uh, they do everything. 
they could do everything on the computer if it's on yeah. the TV screen, or or you do a couple shots in New York City, and then the rest of it's in a studio. And so, has it changed your experience, like you know, as an actor, like when you work on on certain things? Now is it just a totally different world yeah, now? Yeah, it's a totally different world, and and the difference is this: when you do a movie, you are you are basically working with a three act system. You have to have a really good beginning. You have to have good rising action, and you have to have a great conclusion that hopefully ties with act one. You have to. When you're doing a TV show, when you're doing a streaming kind of TV show, the goal is not to get to act three. Hmm. The goal is not to get there. So I take a look at the genius of what the the best was Jim and Pam on The Office, Mm. how they kept those two apart. Oh, my God. And, and, you know, and again, once they come together, it wasn't as disappointing as you would think, you know, but they had to bring in all sorts of other people, you know, to kind of keep it going because you didn't have that tension anymore. So on a TV show, they try not to get there. And like Breaking Bad, you know, they'll try not to get there. They'll have all sorts of action. Oh, a new cartel's coming in. Oh, more killing. Uh, Sopranos. You know, new families coming in. Oh, we have a new so-and-so. Do you you like that or not like that? It's a different thing. It's TV, and they want to not end it. So they kind of are in the school of rewriting and, and, you know— what new care, you know, Silicon Valley, let's bring in this guy. Right. And we'll see how that works out. So I was able to do Jack Barker it was wonderful for me. And it's, yeah. I don't know if you've experienced it, but like they're, they're so good at it now. A lot of the shows, they perfected it so well that it's almost like I get mad at them because they're so good at, at not finishing it that I, you know, sitting there and stopping is like impossible. <laughs> and I, I fall for it every time. Like I'm always like, um, it's like the Gilligan's Island, like thinking you're going to get off the island. Like you're like, okay, well, this episode seems like something big's going to happen at the end and have some closure. And then it's like, nope, this huge thing happens and you're not going to know until next time. And it's just like, fuck now. And that's how they get me watching things till seven in the morning. <laughs> well, um, well, you know, you know from life that there really is no act three, except when you die, you, you know, there is no act three because, uh, you wake up the next morning. And uh, I remember it's ground, you know, (laughs) it's, it's like, I mean, Groundhog Day is not to go, but I mean, it's such a brilliant movie because of the allegory it is for life. Well, just take a look at the story I told you about Kathy Bates is that, you know, where are you going to say act three is for her? If it were a TV show, is it, if it's Pat Richards TV show, we're going to take it from when she was doing vanities and Kathy. Bates was the big star of that show, and then she has to leave because of an illness. Pat Richardson takes over, and she becomes the star. You know, so we f- we're following Pat's story and how she ends up on Home Improvements. You know, if that's the story we're telling, you know, then Kathy's part becomes uh, secondary. But if we're telling the Kathy Bates story, we could we go into her depression afterwards, right. and how and how she felt like she was never going to make it, and she goes to uh Kentucky and acts in a fellow SMUers play Crimes of the Heart and meets Marsha Norman and ends up on broad then we're on that story. So yeah. any one of the characters in these stories uh on a TV show, it depends 
if that's the person you're following. Right. And so they have to keep all the balls in the air because they don't know which way they're going to go with it. And you've had a, you know, obviously a very successful career as an actor, but um, I feel like no matter how someone successful is, do you have moments of, oh, I should have done this more or like I should have focused on this because it's like people, I think it's just a human thing to kind of get caught up in what could have alternate realities. Like we, kind of what you're talking about where like something happens that you uh, you didn't want to happen, but then it kind of leads to something else. I think, you have, do, you have, do you have those moments? Or you you have, I have plenty of regrets, but I have a lot fewer regrets because of Ed K. Martin saying just say yes. Yeah. If if I I feel like I didn't leave any chips on the table, I feel like I played with every club in my bag. How many more metaphors can I come up with? It's like it's it's the thing that you didn't do either because of lack of energy, lack of courage, or lack of preparation that you kick yourself later. But if you did it and failed, that's what it yeah. is. And you I will say, looking at, your, looking at your IMDb, it looks like you took that to heart, that advice. You <laughs> it's, definitely It's longer than some books. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, you just do it. You just do it, and you, you never know which project's going to be good or not, or if the people are going to be good to work with or not. That's why. Who would think the Californication or the Goldbergs would have, like, two of the most wonderful casts to work with yeah. ever? Or, or, you know, certainly one day at a time fantastic group of people and and you you meet these people and you go like well i could see one of the reasons why these shows were successful is because they don't give headaches necessarily to the higher ups uh, to the people because they go like well this cast is easy these people are great they do their work they get it done on time that's great they're good for the bean counters too yeah all right. Well, uh, Stephen Toblowski, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, really do. Pleasure. This was like amazing. Such yeah. a, uh, also, we know I, I've heard your podcast. It's a great podcast. If you want to plug it. It's uh, huge. Well, just the Toblowski files when when it, it doesn't cost anything. And uh, when I, I broke my neck riding a horse on the side of an active volcano in Iceland, uh, recovering, I thought, well, since the doctor told me I had a fatal injury, which obviously I didn't, I would write some true stories about my life for my kids so they would be able to read this. And then uh, David Chin, a producer then in Boston, now in Seattle, he asked me if I wanted to do a podcast and talk about showbiz. I said, well, I happen to be writing these stories. He said, well, let's record these stories. So I began recording these stories. Now I have 99 of them. Uh, they're about, you know, 50 minutes or so each. They've been on uh, NPR, uh, PRI. They've been around the world. Uh, we did movies of the stories. Uh, it led to two books with Simon & Schuster. It was one of those wow. things that because I said yes to the opportunity of the broken neck, it said like, well, I'm going to do something positive with this time and started writing these stories. So the Tobolowski files are true stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry. So they're not all film stories, but they're film stories, TV stories, acting stories, but they're also stories of when I first fell in love with Claire Richards when I was eight. And they're <laughs> stories of when I fell in love with Beth Henley at uh, SMU, when I fell in love at first sight, when I saw her. And then there are stories of when we broke up, and there are stories of when I met Anne, my wife, and, and the 
our trials and tribulations and our love and our t- stories about our kids. So it spans the gamut. And so many people, I hear f- people, they hear a crisis I talk about or a funny thing I talk about. People write me all the time and said, oh, the same thing happened to me. And there's this camaraderie that it's developed around the world with it. So it's it's a lot of fun. It's mostly funny and it's free. There's no, you don't have to pay anywhere. No paywall, no nothing. The what is it? Is it on, um, is it on all the, uh, like Spotify? And I think it's on the platforms. I think it's all sorts of places, but you just go to my website. If you want just Stephen, just go to Tobolowskifiles.com. It has a dedicated website. You can listen to it there. It's, it's people love okay, cool. it for we'll long check that trips. Out. That sounds, yeah. That's everyone great. check that out. That's, that's yeah. awesome. And, um, Thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. And, uh, if you're ever in New York, you know, uh, me and Eric, we do stand up. So if you're if you're ever in New York and you want to come to a show, I may, I may be. I, I've just been talking to some people about doing a play in New York again. Can you believe that? Wow. A play in New York. That's we'll awesome. see if that happens. Do it. Comes full circle. Broadway's yeah. back. You know. I know. Yeah, well, you know, I'm seeing off, but... um, I'm seeing American Buffalo tomorrow. Oh, fantastic! I haven't I haven't seen a play in God. It's been like three years. I'd say that's a yeah. shame. I know, I know, but I was like America, but you know, Sam Rockwell, Lawrence Fishburne. Oh like, God, what a cast! <laughs> yeah. I know so. that should be okay. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think it'll be all right. <laughs> we'll see if they can pull it off. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, Le2B, uh, rate and review, subscribe. Stephen Tobloski, check out his podcast, and uh, thanks again. And we'll see you, you next bet. time. Thanks, Talk man. to you guys later. See Thank you. you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye.